Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Hi, Craig. Welcome back to our next episode, listeners. Nice to have you. Hello, hello. So our episode this fortnight is a topic that Craig is particularly interested in, but I have to say that it was my idea. Yes, it was. um, I'm very grateful, though. For lots of reasons that I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure we'll reflect on. We've got two amazing guests, but Craig, tell us about our topics, Asylum Health, which is obviously the area you work in. Yeah. But Tell us maybe why you think this is an issue for all nurses at present. Okay, it's a very, very topical issue at present because obviously Brexit's happened, which has changed a lot of things. We're no longer part of the EU bloc. Like it or not, Brexit has happened. But Mm -hmm. Priti Patel, our Home Secretary, whether you like it or not, has set out a new immigration bill and how she wants immigration to come across. So this is me being as apolitical as I can be. So her immigration... I will not be apolitical. Her immigration bill literally, and I'm reading this out, states that she will be able to speed up the removal of failed asylum seekers and dangerous foreign criminals, introduce new maximum life sentences for people smugglers... I don't disagree with that. Empower border force to do more to stop and seize small boats and search containers for hidden migrants. Stop illegal arrivals gaining immediate entry into the asylum system if they've travelled through a safe country like France. She might find that one problematic because we're no longer part of the EU. So good luck with that because she's going to have to arrange separate treaties with every single one of the countries that the asylum seekers pass through. So good luck, pretty. Next. Maybe not uh, so apolitical, hey, Craig? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Increase the maximum sentence for the illegality of entering the UK and grant settled refugees indefinite leave to remain. That I don't disapprove with. And better integrated refugees who are resettled. That, again, I think is a very good idea. However, A very large refugee charity who are known as Refugee Action, the day this new bill was proposed, came out saying people fleeing for their lives have little choice in how they safely seek asylum. There is no wrong type of refugee, but these reforms punish refugees for how they enter the country, creating one rule for some and a different rule for others. People seeking asylum are already demonised while desperately trying to navigate a complex system. Creating a divide based on how people try to reach safety will further fuel the harassment, violent attacks and hate crimes people already experience. So I think that's really important that you've got that massive organisation speaking out. And I know that there's a lot of people who have a lot of issues with the new proposals, particularly we go on to speak with one of our guests, works in Asylum Health in Wales. I work in an Asylum Health bridging team in Scotland. 
A lot of these rules directly affect the populations that we work with. Very recently in the news, there were dawn raids done in Glasgow in our first minister, Nicola Sturgeon's own constituency, to remove a refugee and an illegal immigrant from Glasgow. I was very proud of my city and how they all stood around the van until they were kicked out. And I never really considered myself a nationalist, but... I now feel like Scotland needs more devolved powers to decide our own asylum and refugee laws, particularly if this government is going to try and enforce these laws in. I do not think they are necessarily right for this population group. But I think... From Craig's non-political stance, (laughs) where he was not going to tell you what he agreed with, that's quite a political statement about (laughs) devolution in Scotland. Yeah, I didn't Um, quite think it would go that way. Yeah, you didn't do that. But anyway, I think I have no issue putting my own view out there, and we'll talk about it after we've heard some interviews. But it's fair to say that I believe that all asylum seekers have rights to safety and health and care and we should not be demonizing them and I do not agree or like 90% of Priti Patel's suggestions however before we sort of talk about our wishes and our hopes and why because for both of us this is quite an important topic and I'll explain why later we would love you to listen to uh, our two interviewees and you've already mentioned that we speak to Jean who is the lead nurse in Swansea for Asylum Seeking Health but before we do that we were honoured and inspired and incredibly privileged to hear from a lady who describes herself as a proud asylum seeker and a survivor of female genital mutilation or FGM. Her story is incredible. It's a tough listen at times, although she is the happiest soul we've possibly interviewed. So here is our chat with Hibo Wadere. Well, Claire and I are absolutely thrilled to be joined by human rights activist and survivor of FGM, Hibo Wardire. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hibo. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honour to be here with you a lot. Oh, no, we're oh, absolutely, so nice to meet you. absolutely <laughs> honoured. Having just moved into the Asylum Health Bridging team, I have been an avid follower of your work and I'm in awe and inspired, so I can't <laughs> wait to hear more in this interview. <laughs> so at the start, we'd like you to tell us a bit about your journey, how you yeah. got to where you are now, because you mm. really do, like I said, have a very inspiring story. We'd love you to be as personal about this as you can be, but mm-hmm. please, please don't share anything that you would feel uncomfortable with. All right. First of all, can I just say thank you very much for reaching out. I wholeheartedly believe that in this universe, we all have a responsibility to get involved and share cruel things that's happening to innocent kids. And I'm so glad that you took that initiative. Not many people as brave as you lot are. Some are very, very apprehensive. Would hear the word genital mutilation and it's like, oh, I can't be part of it. So thank you very much in advance for that. So I come from Somalia, east of Africa. It's called the Horn of Africa. Very beautiful country, very hot country. I was born and raised there, but there's one thing that my country literally practices, and it's a cruel, cruel practice that's called female genital mutilation. Yeah. I would say 
on my age group, almost 100% of us were, were mutilated, literally 100%. We're still the highest in terms of cutting goals. was almost 95 to 96%. So what does that mean? What do they do to the goals? And it's quite staggering because I never used to understand why that was done to me. Why was it done? I never understood that. And I struggled with it the minute they, you know, opened my leg and did that to me. I always struggled with it on why. Why did you do that? And I was six years old when that happened. And um, the way they do before they even begin to cut you is to prep you. It's like they kind of groom you. You are told you're going to be this person. You're going to be this woman. You're going to be brave. You're going to be this and that. But in the middle, there's nothing or any indication to tell you exactly what's going to happen to you for you to become that. As a six-year-old girl, when you tell your daughter, if you have a daughter, you know, if I do this, if I do, you're going to be a woman. They're excited because for them, woman is you as a mother. They look at you as a woman and they want to emulate you. They want to wear what you wear. They want to do all those things. So for me, it was all about that. I was thinking, I'm going to be a woman. So I'll be able to wear my mom's black clothes. I can do this and that. Little did I know that's quite far from what in their head a woman is. And it was that morning, that fateful morning that my life completely, utterly changed, was being taken to the makeshift hut behind our house where I literally got butchered. When I say get butchered, I see it as being butchered because the reason I use that word is I used to go with my mom to the butcher. And I don't know, butchers here are a bit nicer, I think, compared to our one where you literally everything is just killed in front of you and you can see and everything. So it was like that for me. I felt literally being six year old I felt like what happened to me death was better than that I don't know if that is explanation for somebody to understand why did I felt that time like that it was because of what was done there was no anesthesia for people like me we were literally hold down legs pulled apart and rusty you know rusty razors came out and before they even cut anything what she did was she had pencil like nails and just literally clicked the clitoris just pull it out before she even cuts anything. That alone kills you. That alone is the most painful thing ever. Cut that off and then keep on cutting and cutting and cutting. And in all that, you are told, don't scream. You're told you're not brave. You are told if you scream, others will hear you. You are six years old. How, how can you control pain like that? Even an adult can't control a pain like that, let alone a child. And for me, it was like within seconds, I was screaming so hard. I didn't have a voice at the end of it. My voice was gone. The pain was too much. I was swimming in my own pain. It was literally everywhere. Every single part of my body felt it was under attack. And it was an attack that was just coming in one go, not gradually. It literally was everywhere. And it continued that. And I felt like it was endless butchering that kept on going and going and going. And by the time they finished with me, I think I was finished too. There was no sound coming out of me. My body was absolutely ravaged. I was not in control of my body. My body was shaking so bad that I was bouncing off the mat. It was unbelievable torture and cruelty in so many levels. And you are transported from where you are, where you are just a few minutes ago, you were loving, child, innocent, happy, all those things. And then within seconds, you are in this nightmare world where you do not know where you are and you do not know what is happening. And you think, 
what happened to my world? What happened to people that I loved? What happened to my mother? What happened to my auntie? Why was I ignored? Why is that? It just, it was different, different, but and that trauma has literally transformed my life in so many ways. And I had type three, which is called infibulation, which means total removal of the clitoris and the labias. And then whatever skin is left stitched you up and leaving you with tiny hole like a matchstick. That hole is where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to get your period need to flow out of it. And should you get married, consummate marriage and then have a child as well. So you can understand when I say that everybody will be, <laughs> their minds will be racing on what and how can you even think of that? How can, how would you have sex? Because going to the toilet alone to urinate was taking about 10 to 15 minutes, let alone anything else. So for me, that is what happened as a childhood. And today as a grown woman, what that did to me, that experience was, it literally defined who I was for almost three decades it literally swallowed me up. It literally turned me into what I hated most, which was cook and clean and just be a mother, which is the best thing. But I always had ambitions and dreams and to do things and literally did what everybody else was doing. Actually, females in my world, all they did was clean, cook and give birth, which I detested in every single level you can think of. But that is what I become. And that changed for me about 11 years ago. And what happened? To so 11 years ago, ago uh, my youngest became a full-time student. And then after that, I didn't have any child at home. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I can see myself. I can feel everything about me. And all these years, I was just running from myself. I was running from my pain, everything. I just normalized as a part of my life. But it was always there. It was always present in every thought, in everything about me. It was there. And knowing that my child has gone to school and I'm in the house, I can see myself was too much. I couldn't handle that. I didn't like what I saw physically. I didn't like emotion. I didn't like nothing about me. I just had this perception of me as somebody who wasn't a normal human being. Like I wasn't a complete woman. So all those things was literally magnifying because I'm not busy. And I went to the school and I asked the head teacher, can I come and volunteer for you? I'll come with my kids morning time and I will leave with my kids. But 3.30, you don't have to pay me. My husband is white. And he was looking at me, are you serious? Yes. So he's asked me to volunteer and I did. And that is when everything for me, literally everything turned upside down. Because here I was thinking, I'm going to be busy. I'm not going to think about me. I'm not going to think about anything. I'm still on this pedestal where I'm just going fast, fast. Then they assigned me to look after a 10-year-old girl in year six. And it turns out that the school had a suspicion when mother said, I'm going to take her back home to see her family. And suspicion was that they thought she's undergone FGM. And in the middle of that conversation, I was doing a level three course to become a teaching assistant. And it was, you have to write an essay about an abuse you're aware or it happened to you. Or and there's something that you are passionate about. And I never, ever dreamed that I'm going to write about FGM. Never dreamed about that. But when that happened, I got really mad at the head teacher because he never did training on this. I was part of the faculty. There was no training on that. Yeah, we were trained on everything else. And it was, how dare you think about FGM, but you don't teach your teacher. They don't know what to do. They don't even know what that is. So that it was starting me off. And I ended up writing a very emotionally charged assignment about me, which was the first time ever 
I sat down and go back to that day as a six-year-old Hebo and looked at myself. And it was a devastating, devastating thing to do that, to look back and see myself. And that assignment is what started me off at that primary school. Yeah, that 10-year-old, I would say, started me off because I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't hide anymore. Even the school that I was running to, literally confronted by it, by a girl that I had this amazing relationship with, loved her to bits. The thought of this happening to her was too much. And that started me off on all this now. Yeah. And when did you come to the UK as an asylum seeker, Hebo? At what yeah. age? I came to UK when I was 18 years old, very first time ever flown on airplane, ever left my country. And I came to UK and it was an absolute blessing, absolute blessing and amazing. And I, and I always say that Hebo began that day because yeah, I was a young woman, no language, nothing, but just absolutely overwhelmed with the sense of feeling freedom and the sense of knowing that I can make decisions about myself, my life, what I want, without consequences, without thinking about anybody. It was brilliant, most important day of my life, arriving in UK. Thank you for sharing that, Hibbo, because I think we take our freedom and our childhood for granted. And I think yeah. it's really important to hear that. Yeah. And in your story then that you had type three female genital mutilation, mm. and we started before this interview recording saying people don't talk about FGM, do they? Yeah. Can you just explain to our listeners a bit about different types of female genital mutilation and what it is and maybe why it's done? Okay, so under the WHO, that is World Health Organization, they have many types that register there. But the most talked type about are four types. So type one is called the clitoridectomy, is either total or partial removal of the clitoris. Type two is called the excision. Again, that is either total or partial removal of clitoris, plus some of labia minora is removed. Type three is infibulation, which is total removal of the clitoris. Both labias, inner and outer labia minora, labia majora is removed. Whatever skin is left is stitched up, leaving you with tiny hole like a matchstick. Type four is to do with all non-medical procedures like piercing, pricking, incising, burning, all those things, elongating of the labias. Now, when I say piercing, people will say, oh, why did she say piercing? You have to understand there are communities that do piercing, not the piercing that me and you know, different way of piercing, using that as a form of female genital mutilation. So those are the types. And why is it done, I suppose? Yeah, the reasons vary. And every community has a self-belief system attached to it. But don't get me wrong. At the end of it, the whole system, beneath everything is about controlling women and girls' sexuality. So some of the communities believe that if we do not remove the clitoris, when the woman gives birth and the baby's head touches the clitoris, either she dies or the baby dies. So we're removing that. Some will say it's to do with hygienic issues because the girl will smell. Some will say the clitoris can grow and turn into penis. Some will say it's to do with womanhood, which the danger with that sentence is if this girl is about 10 and 11 and she's mutilated, automatically they assume she's a woman. That means marriage, things that she's not ready starts to happen. In my community, it's all to do with taking away your sexual urges. When they remove the clitoris, they say that. And stitching you up is not even to dare to have sex. So it is controlling women and girls' sexuality. Some communities like Indonesia, Malaysia, attach religion to it. Religion has got nothing whatsoever to do with it. It's not in Quran, 
Torah, Bible, or anybody book or believe. It actually predates religion, but it's practiced by Muslim, Christian, Jews, and non-believers. So it's not even exclusive to one country. For example, if I give you a Christian country, Eritrea, which is almost 100% Christian Orthodox, cut their daughters like us, and there's about 90% as well. There's many other deep south in America. As early as 1940s, they were removing women to curb their hysteria or masturbation or queer lesbianism, they said. So it has been around, but it had different names. I think it's important to acknowledge it's against the law in the UK. Yes, Yes. that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because I think people yes. think it's against law and we can shut our eyes mm. that's something that happens elsewhere yes so- it's crazy when people say that and I'll ask them questions like this so pedophilia is illegal all those things is illegal but does that stop pedophilia happening no does that stop a sexual abuse happening to the kids no does that stop their domestic violence no we all got strong laws FGM is the same thing and it's never far from you and UK made it illegal actually back in 1985, but we never had a prosecution until two years ago, where one lady was prosecuted and she did cut her daughter here in UK, and she took her to the hospital, really bleeding as a three-year-old, and she was saved, and mother was sent down for 14 years jail time. So it's never far from you, and I don't want people to be afraid of it because it's not my culture. We actually, it's happening in UK. There's other word known for it, which is glamorized by, you know, the stars, and they call it labioplasty, vagina designer. It's all about trimming labia, trimming this and that, and have a tighter hold. It's all to do with that as well, so it's not far that is an adult making a decision doing that that's fine but it is happening to the kids who are born and bred here it doesn't matter their skin their color or whatever they are british kids and they need to be protected and i think when you talk about the illegality of it i certainly know i went to see an amazing charity sahelia in yeah. Scotland who work I know with, them I they, know them um, yeah so they work with women who mm. come from honor based violence from forced yeah. marriage and survivors mm. of FGM and yeah. in Scotland there's a 14 year jail sentence if it happens mm. in this country but also if you take your child away for it to happen yes. is that the same across yes. the whole UK Yes it is in UK this is what was happening in UK 2003, you could take your child, mutilate them, return them back. Even if you are found out, this country will not do nothing about you because you've done outside UK. So we worked with the Home Office quite extensively and they've changed that now. It doesn't matter where you take them, you will be held accountable. If you coerced a girl to be cut, you will be held accountable. If you took your child that knowing that your family, you don't believe in FGM, but you know that your family believes in FGM and you took the child back and the family made the decision to cut your daughter without your permission, you are still held accountable because you put that child in danger. So there's a lot of great laws that came in that has really transformed everything in UK right now. So what our listeners won't have heard, at the start of our interview, we heard you talking to your son Adam so <laughs> you are an asylum seeker and an FGM survivor so yeah. what have your experiences of the UK health services been because obviously you have mentioned that you had type 3 FGM in yeah. relation yeah. Yeah. So you were yeah. fully stitched up so I imagine yeah. when you had Adam if you don't yeah. mind talking to no, our no. listeners about it so, how have your experiences been so I said when I came here freedom was overwhelming <laughs> 
freedom was overwhelming in so many ways for me. It was just unbelievable to be in a foreign country that I didn't know language. So many white people I've never seen before, different shades of white people, like a different shades of black people. It was so brilliant to see that. But also it was like, oh my goodness, I need to get help because I was suffering so bad in terms of period. It was terrible every month. I felt like death is visiting every month. That's how bad it was. And still weeing was horrific. So first thing that I did was go and ask for help, which thank God I was given help, which meant that they did an operation to open me up, which is called de-infibulation, which means they literally just open you up to expose your urethra and your vagina hole is out there. So you can urinate and you can have your wee. Now having a child when you don't have labias is called problems because labias are there to expand when you're having a child. And when the nothing expands and you just have a scarring tissue, that's some mind-blowing problems. And when I was giving birth back in 1991, I don't think this country knew about FGM. And I literally suffered very bad giving birth. And it took me about six to seven months to heal up. I read really bad. Wounds wouldn't heal up properly. It was just one problem after one problem. But I think right now what's happening with UK is absolutely brilliant. And that's down to the health officials listening to survivors and actually enlisting us, you know, to change the services, which means now if a woman becomes pregnant, I don't know about Scotland, but if a woman becomes pregnant in England right now, is it's a unanimous question. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Muslim, Christian, Jews, it doesn't matter. You're asked, are you cut? And if you say yes, then you are rerouted. And almost every hospital has an FGM clinic, which means you have one doctor, one midwife seeing you throughout your pregnancy until you deliver and after that. Why? Because your trust was broken so badly when you were a child. So you trusting an adult and telling your story one time, it takes a lot out of you. And then you, who's not empowered woman, still very guided about that. You don't want to repeat that. Every time you meet somebody new, oh, you're going to repeat yourself. You don't want to do that. So in that clinic, you will also be given a holistic approach. You will be offered a holistic approach, which is if you need psychological support, emotional support, or even surgical support. Most of the women, they might have been intimate, but they're still that on top, which means they will still need this procedure. And 99% of them want that procedure to be done during labor, when she's in labor. So in terms of uh, women being helped right now, it's unbelievably amazing how NHS has transformed itself back in my days. No, 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 no. They were so afraid to talk to you. No one ever asked me anything. No one did. Yet they wrote on my report card, what was I and all those things. But to me, face to face, they have never done that. No. I think that's a credit to you and other people with lived experience that we've got those services that are there for women because that yeah. sounds just designed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Need more services like that, but that is absolute credit to the people like you with lived experiences shared their experience because without- we have to, we have to, we have to. I did not want any other woman to go and give birth and suffer the way I did, and most importantly, not given a chance to be asked because why are you afraid to ask a woman? Have you undergone this? It's a simple question because most of the women who've undergone will never discuss this out loud. But when it comes to her child, she will discuss that. She will say what they want. And most of them, it's the first time ever somebody has asked them that kind of question, which can be such a relief. Somebody to relieve you, to you know, to ask you that. It opens a million other doors. FGM is just one door, but there's many other doors attached to that. Yeah. 
I suppose that leads nicely on to my next question, which is thinking about, I suppose, midwives as well, but other nurses and healthcare professionals. I work in mental health. Craig's an adult nurse. He works in an asylum bridging team. But how can we as nurses and healthcare Mm. professionals help women who are survivors of FGM at any stage of their journey? Talk to them. Talk to them. Ask them. Ask them what is, you know, what's their tradition. Get to know them and then ask them, do you know about this? I've read about this because people that you're talking is people that you've established trust with. They wouldn't be afraid. They wouldn't mind you asking questions. And I was actually advising on an amazing, amazing, very well-known psychologist who asked me that question. She said, I've been working with this man for a while now. I really want to ask this question. I don't know how to ask. I said, you're a psychologist and you don't know how to ask that question. (laughs) Troubling. (laughs) You need to ask the question because it is like, for example, if you are sitting with a family or a woman and you think she's domestically abused or you think she was sexually abused, you wouldn't hesitate asking her questions. So why is it so difficult to ask women who've undergone FGM, have you undergone? It's a simple question that can have such a effect on that woman and can change life for better. Most of them, their life changes because somebody else has relieved them. So don't be afraid to do your job. And the way to do your job is to have your professional hat and your humanity hat together, combine them, you will not go wrong. I have a specific question to ask you, Hebo. As a male practitioner who works with asylum seekers, how do you personally feel about men working with survivors of FGM? Do you think it should be female-only professionals? I think what's going to happen with you is, first of all, if they're the women from like my community or any other community, they will have difficulty in talking to the male. Having said that, if you are somebody who've gained their trust, yes, they've got to know you, they've got to work with you, you've gained your trust, they can actually literally open up to you and tell you. But I will always advise a male and a sort of doctor, please have somebody else there with you when you're asking that question, because sometimes they might not want to talk. Sometimes they want to talk. Sometimes they just might get angry with you for their asking this question, because we come from these communities where men do not get involved in women issues. That's how they put it. So they find it so difficult, especially to talk about your the most private part of your body with a man. It's unheard of. So don't be offended by that if they tell you, I don't want to talk to you, you're a man, because that's how we were raised. And uh, for us to talk to a man about our private part, it's just it's unheard of. But if they gain the trust on you, of course they will. Oh, no, I think what you say is absolutely essential in healthcare to me and to Claire, I know, and to all our listeners is very person-centered and family-centered and driven by what that individual wants. So I would never dream of doing that. So it kind of leads me into my next question. So you have achieved so much, Hebo. You have done inspiring work as a training facilitator, a consultancy expert. You've done international speaking. You've influenced policy. So um, what progress have you seen through your work And also, what do you think our next priorities need to be? Oh, my God, what have I seen? I've seen so much. I remember literally about 10 years ago when we went to Westminster to talk to the MPs. We were hushed in a room. Don't say vagina. 
don't tell the minister vagina, don't say, just go. We were literally hushed. And now we are like on Lorraine Kelly, eight o'clock in the morning, we're talking about that. You were this and there, you're talking. It's accepted. It's, it should be because we're talking about every other child abuse that's out there. We shouldn't treat FGM different to that. At the end of the day, we are all humanity, united in defending, you know, innocent kids. So why is one difficult than the other. It isn't. It's adults who makes it difficult because they're not comfortable with that. So it has come along. We've changed so many laws. And the thing that I'm very proud of was COVID has overshadowed last year. Government has made part of primary, secondary school to be taught FGM last year, September. And for me, we are still pushing for them to make it primary school education because that is where most likely a girl will be cut from ages zero and under the ages of 10. So that is where we are working up. But we have seen so much heaps and bounds of changes in terms of policies. NHS has done great work. Professionals up and down the country are seeking training to understand better, to help them. Hundreds of girls are saved because of that. So we have seen so much, so much change, so much change, which I'm proud of. And what do you think the next step should be? <laughs> the next step is there's a film coming out <laughs> um, based on my book, and I can't wait to see that. Yeah, snaps. <laughs> and What's your book I, uh, called, people? Cut. It's called Cut One Woman's Fight Against Steph Jen Britain Today. But I think my dream, 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 dream is to see this made permanently in primary school education. I have to a primary school and it's so easy to teach primary school. You don't tell the primary school, this is cut, this is teach them. There's an easy way, language-wise, easy way to teach them. So I want it to be part of primary school and that is my dream, which I'm not giving up. We still are bugging the government until they say yes. I think they'll say yes to you. <laughs> feel that it's going to happen. Yeah. We, I mean, we could ask you so many more questions and I'm already thinking about conversations I can have with my colleagues and in my team and hopefully people will reflect on what you've said and change their practice, which I think just like you say, gaining that trust and asking those questions. Yeah. But we ask all of our guests for one unique piece of advice, specifically for nurses, anything. It doesn't even have to be about what we've been talking about. Any piece of advice, what would yours be? Do you know what? I'll tell you something. When I was giving birth, I actually loved my nurses more than my doctors because nurses were gentle. They can see my eyes, the pain. They will be extra gentle with me. They were lovely. They had time to talk to me. They had time to help me get clean. I have such a beautiful memories of nursing community and I love nursing community and for me the word nurse I always stand and I say it's about nurturing you're nurturing people when they need you the most when they're vulnerable you are brilliant and you are in a position to make a change in somebody's life because of your kindness think about that think about sometimes you might need to come out of your profession to just go that little bit step forward to help humanity God knows we need that these days. We need that. And we, I think we need also a very, very professional who are willing, willing to step up, not afraid to seek help when they need help and not afraid to ask the most hardest question there is. And they know in their gut they need to ask. Please ask. Don't be afraid. Be brave. Be bold. Be a humanist. That's all I'm saying. What a call to action, Hebel. And if anyone wants to follow you on social media, where's the best place to follow you? Twitter. Twitter is my place. And what's your I'm handle? Yeah, uh, Hebel Warday. So follow me. Uh, Hebel Warday, you will not miss me. I'm there. I'm the one that can't shut up. <laughs> I'm feeling You're not the only one. You're not the only one. <laughs>
It's been so lovely. Thank you for yeah. your time. Oh, thank thank you. you very much for having me. Thank you so Don't much. Don't tell Adam he can talk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what you lot do is an amazing job. And I think if anything, COVID has exposed what wonderful you all are, health officials. You really are amazing. And I couldn't be more prouder because most of my friends are health officials who worked with us since the day one. And yeah, I'm, I'm very, very, very respectful and very loving towards all of you. Really, I am. And we have nothing but love for you, Hebo, for sharing your story with us and to all our listeners. So thank you. No, you're welcome. Anytime, anytime. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Craig and I are delighted to have our second guest with us. It's Jean Saunders, MBE, and Jean is the lead nurse for asylum seekers, the Swansea Bay University Health Board. Welcome, Jean. Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) We've spoken on the phone many a time, so it's very nice to actually see you face to face and get to share you with our listeners. You're more than welcome. I'm looking forward to it, actually. You just have to make sure you keep me not sidetracked. (laughs) <laughs> oh well we're very good at side tracking each other so no promises there we ask all our guests when they come on to tell us a little bit about their story so far so if you don't mind telling our listeners your journey anything that you wouldn't mind sharing obviously keep anything personal to yourself that you wouldn't want to share but yeah tell us about your journey through nursing well I actually started nursing at the age of 35 so I was late into nursing I had my children first I started RGN training in October 1985 and loved it. Loved my nursing, loved every bit of the three years training, but in those days there were no jobs, very few jobs at the end of qualification. And we were fortunate enough to have some funding from our government to increase staffing on the neonatal unit in the hospital where I was working. So five of us, newly qualified, as green as you could be, (laughs) we all went to the neonatal unit. In hindsight now, as a manager, I think, oh my God, what they must have been thinking at the time. They had five new qualified nurses, had only done a 10-week stint on paediatrics. But and I love neonates. I absolutely adored neonates. I loved the relationship I had with the families. And even through my training, like surgery wasn't my idea of heaven. I love medicine, love that time being with people and families and neonates was, was amazing. But things change and I felt that healthism was a natural progression because I was still going to be with the families and the children. So I applied for my health visit training. I I didn't get in the first time, reapplied the second year and was lucky enough to start the course. And yeah, best decision I made, I think. I've still got strong links with the neonatal unit, though I must say, and it's always got a special part of my life. But health visiting to me again was as I say a natural progression. And again, I love my training, I love being with the families, and quite a few of the families I had in my case load were ex babies from the neonatal unit that I nursed. Aww. As well. So I was able to see them through. And during the first two years of me qualifying and starting my case, thought I was able to be to look after children's team. So I've always been in a little niche. Part of my three years general training, I've been in a specialised area. So whilst I was doing a two days secondment and well, job share was part-time generic and two days looked after children, this post that I'm currently doing became vacant. My predecessor was leaving to go to Australia and I knew her and she said, you know, you really should apply for this job, June. She said, it'll be right up your street. And I did. And, and 17 years later, here I am. I'm still there. 
I'm ready to push up Daisy, but I'm still there. But it's been 31 years of, yeah, of joy, you know, hard, exhausting, tiring, but I've loved it. I've loved every minute. It's so nice to hear that because I think... I don't know what Craig thinks, but certainly at the moment, I came to nursing late. I qualified last year at 44. And so many nurses who have been in the profession for a really long time have lost that passion and that love. And they look back and say they loved it. But we don't hear as many people who've done that amount of time still saying Mm -hmm. they love it. And I hope I do still love it when I come towards the end of my career. And it's so inspiring to see that you've spent 17 years doing what you love. And Mm. that fills me with hope that I might find my niche and be there for 17 years. Yeah. And I think it's about that, isn't it? It's finding an area that you really enjoy. And I think the bit that I enjoy about it is, and I'm sure Craig will relate to this, it's like lots of areas. It changes every day. You never, ever know what's coming through the door, and like all areas of nursing. But I think the difference with asylum seekers, you don't know anything about their backgrounds. You literally do start from scratch. And it's that challenge. It's the challenge of working with the Home Office. And Oh, <laughs> yes. Be, it can be, I will say, Craig... I'll keep you <laughs> the politics. I've got really, really good working relationships with my colleagues in the Home Office, certainly locally. But again, it, it's the relationships that have been built up over time. And again, within my area here in Swansea, we've got fantastic collaborative work in here. The amount of work that goes on between all the agencies to support asylum seekers when they arrive in Swansea is second to none. If I don't blow out trumpet, nobody else will. We've got superb volunteer services. We've got really good, robust clinical processes in place. And we work really well with the Migration Partnership, with the Home Office. And, and yeah, we've worked really hard over the last 17 years to put things in place. And bear in mind, it's not been easy, believe you me. And I think that's the bit that I like about it. It is that challenge and achieving what you want to set out. And when you've sorted something out, when you haven't got a dentist to send people to, you think... And when you get a service up and running, you think, yes, I've done that, I've achieved that. You know, So there's lots of things that we've done over the years that have seemed insurmountable in the beginning and all surmountable, but ended up that we've managed to achieve it, which has been extremely gratifying. And we know our clients benefit from what we've done. Yeah. And how did you make the switch from being a health visitor to working specifically with asylum seeking? When dispersal started across UK in 2001 and Cardiff became an initial accommodation area for the whole of Wales and the southwest, and in fact it goes up as far as Plymouth and Swindon, okay, Public Health Wales were very much looking at what services they wanted to set up in terms of support for dispersed clients as well, not mm-hmm. just for those in the initial accommodation. And our then local public health director and our head of health visiting were very clear with their vision of how people were going to be supported. And the reason we had a health visitor-led service is because we're adults and children trained. Mm-hmm. And we're not a medical model. We are a public health prevention and promotion model. And that's the difference between an IA and IA's initial accommodation uh, centre. They have to have a medical model because they are seeing the individuals 
as soon as they're arriving in the country, whereas we are seeing them when they disperse and they live with us in the area for however long. It could be two months, it could be 12 years. And in fact, there are a couple of people that I still know in Swansea have been here almost as long as me. And that's the difference, I think, why we went down a health visiting route. Yeah, because your service is very different from mine. Mine is nurse-led with adult and mental health nurses, but we operate under Section 98. So mm. it's not initial accommodation, whereas you operate under Section 95. So that's Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying to your manager, Stuart... McGaffer. Yeah, I think, and that's the difference... All the initial work is done, hopefully, in IA. That's if they attend for the assessment, which I will say is not mandatory. They haven't got to have them. When they're dispersed, what we found very, very early on, and we learned a very big lesson, was that people don't always disclose in their initial assessment. A lot more comes out as time goes by. Yeah. So we almost repeated, but we encouraged them all to open up. And we've learned lots more from repeating that health assessment and adding to it once yeah. they're dispersed. Yes. Because they know that's where they're going to be staying. And, so and is your team doing. purely made up of health visitors then, Jean? There are three health visitors, including myself, and one community nurse. But my community nurse is adult trained. She hasn't got a child qualification. And we do have a lot of families, you see, Craig. This is different to other areas. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of families. So we add to the assessment for the children, but we also immunise all those children over five because nobody was picked that up and that's a big thing for me there was a study a couple of years ago looking at our approach to immunization and one of the other areas yeah um, public health did that research and they clearly showed that our immunization is obviously much greater because there was a dedicated service and we started immunizations from scratch from the very beginning rather than look at the world health organization schedule because then you're having to guesstimate what they may or may not have had and when they would have had it yes and we felt that wasn't safe practice so we always immunize from scratch unless obviously the parents choose not to but we also immunize adults from the very beginning as well. Yeah, whereas our key demographic of who we see is predominantly male. So that is why we do have one health visitor on our team who works bank, who sees families, and we do work with children and adult EMIS and see some families and link them into local health visitors. Mm. In Glasgow, our predominant populations we work with happen to be adult males, particularly at the moment from Iraq and Iran. Yeah, and that's the same in Belfast as well, because when I spoke to them in Belfast, they were saying that they had a large single male population and some families, but um, we get an awful lot of families, certainly in Swansea at the moment anyway, because we've got a lot of empty beds. So, But can I ask you, Craig, then, in terms of your children, mm-hmm. if they're under five, you link them in the health visits, what happens to the children over five? Who looks at their health needs and does any form of health assessment with them? So children over five, the adult nurses, we would do their initial health assessment and then it's linked into the GP. So they would get linked into the GP and the GP looks after them. Right. So what we wanted to ask next, so our first guest speaker we had on, Jean, was Hebo Wardera, who is a human rights activist and a female genital mutilation survivor. So what have you, Jean, learned most by working with asylum seekers in the UK? 
Well, I thought about this when I saw the question. And one of the main things I think I would say is how resilient they are. Yeah. They're extremely resilient. Yes, they arrive in the UK. A lot of them arrive with very complex needs, whether it be health or social care needs. And we as a team and yourselves in Scotland, any of the asylum nurses have got a great deal to do to support those who access healthcare services. But they are resilient. They're a resilient group of people. I've met some amazing people over the last 17 years, some of whom I've become really close to. One lady, when I did my presentation for the nurse of the year, I used her as part of my presentation because she was just so inspiring. She leads, or she did lead, our volunteer service in Swansea. She went to work for public health and is now working in one of our neighbouring health boards. She is amazing. And one of the other ladies that I work really closely with has taken that role now. So she was leading for the volunteer service in Swansea. And they're just so inspirational. Um, Stephanie, the first lady, had to leave her children behind. One of them was a very young baby because she felt that it was too dangerous to bring the baby to the UK. So she brought the two-year-old with her and left two others behind with her husband. She'd been imprisoned. Um, She'd had a terrible time, but she came out and delivered the baby and fled. She was from Zimbabwe and she had... A successful application after about two and a half years, if I remember right, and then brought her family over and her children had to learn that she was their mother again. And she said it was the strangest feeling because the baby didn't know who she was. And the resilience of that woman is just phenomenal. And she's one of many, many people that I've met over here. So I think their resilience is really inspiring. And yes, like I said, they do have lots of needs, but they're extremely resilient. I mean, oh, I just, I mean, I'm a mum of four. You can't imagine it. And people don't understand, do they, what it takes to do that and what no, what no. extreme pressure and fear and persecution she was under yeah. to make that move. And you just, you can't imagine it. But you mentioned then your RCN Nurse of the Year, which you won in 2019 and 20. We've mentioned that you've got an MBE and those things must both have been a huge honour, but what other professional highlights do you have? There's been loads. I think developing the service in itself has just been phenomenal because it bears no resemblance to what it was when I first started there. And it's evolved, it's developed. We haven't got a massive turnover of staff, I must say. I'm extremely lucky. <laughs> I put an advert out last Friday for another health visitor, and that's only the fourth time I've ever had to advertise to a member of staff and the others have retired. So we're really lucky. Like I said, I, my master's, I think when I had that, that was amazing because I did it while I was on the neonatal unit. And my dissertation was very emotive because it was the decision to include parents in the decision making. So it was Essex bound and yeah, it was very emotive and it was hard. Mm-hmm. The consultant and I had many, many, many conversations about it over the years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going back in the 90s where things were different. And um, yeah. yes, parents were included, but not as much as certainly as they are now. And so before I left, things evolved a lot as well. So that was really interesting. I think... 
being the voice as well. The voice for my clients has been brilliant. I'm, I'm lucky to sit on a number of forums. Like I said, I do work closely with Welsh governments. I've got a completely different role to a lot of lead nurses. I don't just manage the service. I do try and influence policy, our health boards as well. I sit on the volunteer safety group. So there's lots of highlights, I think. But I suppose the MBE must be the pinnacle of everything. And I must say, in terms of the nurse of the year, I am still, I get, I get emotional, proud and privileged that I was oh, nominated so by my peers. But it was the fact that my peers felt strongly enough to yeah. nominate it completely blew me away. And I still get emotional yeah. about it. It's just As you should. Yeah. Well, what a so, legacy. What a I, legacy to leave. It's yeah. so, so well deserved though, Jean, and the work you've done has been phenomenal and for your peers to give you that recognition. As nurses, we very often are self-deprecating and don't celebrate enough what we've done and no. you've done truly remarkable work. You're right. And I think for me, I kept saying, but it's the team, it's not me. And it, I think the realisation hit me when somebody said, yes, but you were the team. And in my presentation, and I actually did say there's no I in team and there isn't, but there is in voice. And that's my legacy. I'm the voice of the team. Yeah. And you didn't want us to introduce you with your MBE. So (laughs) Craig's right. We do all kind of play down our successes. And Craig and I are the same, I think. But we should celebrate it because we need to celebrate how awesome nurses are and diverse and what experiences and celebration we have. So amazing. Yeah. Snaps to you. And I love... I just love hearing you, your passion that you talk about it with. As I say, I've only been in my service for a month, but I absolutely love it. And you did me such a kindness, Jean. The second that you saw me tweet that I was moving into that service, you were in my DMs offering to phone me. And I think you must have phoned me within 24 hours of me being offered the job. So I am extremely, extremely grateful for that. Now, You've worked in asylum health for a long time and Mm -hmm. you are coming towards the end of your career, as you've said. Now, I'm thinking I might know where this question will go, but what would you like for your legacy to be to improve healthcare for future asylum seekers in the UK? He's only saying that because we've already had a conversation about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. Just to all the other listeners, I'm just as in the dark as everybody else. (laughs) I'm going to throw him slightly and and not mention what he thinks I'm going to say. Good. I like it. Yeah. I think I want to be able to leave the service thriving. And I want to leave it knowing, and I know it will, knowing that it's in really, really good hands and that all the assignment seekers that are going to come through in the future will be supported in the right way. That's one of my legacies. The other thing I'd like, as Craig knows, is to be able to set up a network for asylum seeker nurses across the UK. So that is my plan. We've already started making little inroads into that. And yeah, so that would be lovely. We used to have an all-wheels forum, but we still have an all-wheels forum. COVID came and decimated everything, as you can imagine. So it was quite, I think it must have been almost 18 months in between, or maybe been almost two years in between us meeting last. And there was always a geographical issue. The girls in Wrexham in North Wales were never able to travel down. And we do link in with Bristol as well, because obviously they're part of the dispersal area for Cardiff. So teams, in one way, has been a blessing because we were all able to meet up earlier on in the year. And it was just nice to be able to talk to people again and talk about some of the challenges 
issues that we were facing, not necessarily making decisions, but just having that contact with people. And I think this is what we need as a forum, as a network, because there isn't much out there and there are so few of us around. And it's a shame and we could really develop that. So that is hopefully my plan before I finish. I'm not telling you when I'm going. No, we're not pushing you out the door. (laughs) But I think as someone new coming into the service, it would be such a great legacy to have. And I think across the four countries, we, NHS Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland all operate slightly differently. So so good. What we do as nurses is share best practice, share best evidence, share what Mm. works, what doesn't work. I mean, what works for you guys might not work for us. But until we all share and bounce these ideas off each other, we'll never know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's struck me is that dispersed areas, and I maybe shoot myself in the foot, that's one thing Wales does do really well is in providing specialised health teams in the dispersed areas. Not everywhere does that. So it would be good to look at the way Wales has modelled its services in comparison Mm -hmm. to the others. So, yes, it's quite exciting going forward, I think. There's going to be a lot of challenges because, obviously, we are limited to what we can do in in some respects because of home office policy, whether we agree or not, unfortunately. But it does restrict some of the things we cannot do. And who knows where we're going to be in two years' time if policy changes and and what type of services we'll be delivering then. Who knows? It depends. It all really depends if this new bill gets put through Parliament and what's going to happen. But I'm interested, like... I'm actually, this isn't one of the questions, but I'm interested to see your thoughts on this because I think if this new bill does come into play, then you're going to have people trying to seek asylum entering the country in much more dangerous ways. So the sort of people that we see and that we are going to meet in our populations are going to have gone through so much more trauma. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. You do both work in specialised teams, which is really interesting. And the services you offer are unique to that population. I think it's important for all our listeners. I work in a community mental health team and we encounter the whole cross-section of population, Mm. including asylum seekers and particularly children of asylum seekers who've grown up in this country. There's no doubt that asylum seekers have mental health issues that that often take quite a while to establish what they are and, and work with them. So I think it's important that we broaden that knowledge. You know, your specialist knowledge that you guys have within your teams is amazing. But certainly I don't think I was taught anything about asylum seeker health at university. And there are so many topics that could be covered in undergraduate nursing. But it would be great. I'm just going to put something out there for your network. But it would be great if within the network there was some kind of learning module for people who didn't work in those specialist teams to understand the specific needs and roles and and what we can do and where we can go for support because I think that's a gap you know we're starting to see that with other specialist services we've done an interview about autism and learning disabilities and we're starting to see more and more learning around there and I think we should tap into these nurses who Craig said nurses do so many different things they're expert 
it would be great to be able to have that resource to say, oh, have you got any advice? Have you come across this before? And start to network more. So don't forget us non-specialists that no, need I think support as well. You're so true, Claire, though, as well. Because where I've just come in infectious diseases, we saw lots of asylum seekers and refugees. I'm sure there are children and young persons, nurses. There will be asylum seekers and refugees with learning yes. disabilities. So yeah. you make a very, very important point. Point. I yeah. think me and Gina are running away because we both work in specialist fields but thank you for hooking us back in because you do make an extremely valid point. Yeah and <laughs> I think that's very much part of our role as well. I don't know about where you are Craig but people do use us as a resource. Um, I teach on the health is in module anyway but people I think services with certainly within our area do use us because they know our expertise and our meal signposts anybody to anywhere that we can and that's the other thing that we do we hold an open access between nine and five every day as well and that's utilized a lot but gp practice will will contact us the health board anybody within the department in the area but one thing i do find after all the years it's been there 20 years this year that service has been there and there are still people saying well i didn't know you were there Mm, you know it's always the way isn't it yeah you, you can only put yourself out there as so much can't you and one thing i will say about going back to the nursery i suppose is it has raised the profile of the service it has given me the opportunity to speak to people like yourself but my own chief nursing officer and and I know you had the NMC chief exec. Oh yeah, we Andrea, had Andrea, Andrea Sutcliffe. You know, I couldn't get it. Sorry, yeah. Andrea. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> I, I spoke. We. I know. I don't know how we fluke these amazing people on like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, she contacted, or her office contacted us and asked if she could come and meet us. And we had a two-hour teams chat with her, and it was brilliant. And she was genuinely, genuinely interested in the work that we do. And I think. So it has given me the opportunity to have that platform to raise that awareness, certainly across Wales anyway, uh, around the service and around the needs of asylum seekers, which I think is very important. And now we're going to raise it across the UK. Yes. We're going to do it. We are. We are. You've got about 18 months so to do we... this and that's gone. <laughs> There you go. She's put a date on it. So before you go completely and for before you go from our interview, we ask everybody at the end of our interviews for a piece of advice, either big or small, for whichever demographic of nurses or the world that you'd like to give. So what's your piece of advice? I think be proud of who you are. I think you must be proud of who you are. And one thing my chief nursing officer once said, and she said it recently when she was leaving, she just recently retired, is never be afraid to speak up. I am quite a passionate person, as you know, and I feel if I've got strong feelings, I will speak, you know, I will voice my concerns. And I think never, ever be afraid to speak up. And those are the two bits of advice I would give. Yeah. Amazing. Be proud. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And if people want to follow you, you're at Jean Saunders too on Twitter, aren't you, Jean? I am. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry if I thank rambled. you. You absolutely haven't. Thank you so much. And I'll be speaking to you soon. I will definitely. <laughs> All the best. Take care, please. Bye bye. Bye. So both incredible, very different interviews. Yep. This episode and I found both- Hebo is very difficult to listen to back when I edited it 
when we were speaking to her like you say she's such a positive force of energy but going back and listening to her story while I was editing it I'm not gonna lie I had tears in my eyes through the whole thing I mean I had tears in my eyes when I was recording I'll tell you something that has happened to me since we recorded because we recorded that kind of a week ago almost I think and she talked about her type 3 FGM and I suppose, you know, I'm a woman, I've had four children, I've always been aware of FGM having an impact on sexual relations that women might have or on childbirth, but I hadn't ever thought about urinating. It just had never even crossed my mind. And every time I've gone to the loo since she's since we did that interview, I think of her, I think of her when I wee. How nice is that? Sorry, Hebo. But it has. It's made me realise that those things we do without thinking about, just part of life, that's what you do, we take for granted and how... A, she was six. And I mean, that just, I can't even comprehend that. I can't comprehend that. But how much it impacted every single aspect of every minute of her day was just incredible. And her story is unimaginable. And I, I've ordered her book and I look forward to so the film. I. Yeah. And I think it was just a total honor to hear from her. And For me, and so he said at the beginning that it was me that suggested this topic, despite the fact that you've just started to work in this area. And this is a really personal topic for me. And it's not something I necessarily consciously realized why until we decided to do this episode. But my mum, my mum's very, very different to me. I jokingly call her, you know, that she's got a heart of stone and she absolutely doesn't. She's one of the most caring people I know, but she isn't a hugging kind of, she's not sort of outwardly affectionate. Like She's not a bleeding hearted liberal like you. Not like me. No, no. Um, But when I was four, well, three and a half, we moved to Hong Kong. I've been really lucky to live all around the world. So we moved to Hong Kong at the end of 1979. And I don't particularly remember not living in an Asian country. I lived in an Asian country until I was 10. And so my mum, when we were out there, didn't work. She didn't have a job, but she was always doing different things. She learned Chinese cookery. She learned to speak Cantonese, loads of different things. And every now and then she used to disappear to a place called Kowloon, which is another island in Hong Kong. And the reason she went, and I knew she was very honest about where she went is she went and volunteered with the Vietnamese boat people so for people who don't know who they were they were people who fled Vietnam after the Vietnamese war and they were not wanted in Vietnam for a variety of reasons but some of it was around their Chinese heritage obviously Vietnam's made up of uh, huge numbers and Hong Kong was one of the most liberal places that started to accept them. So they had three months to come. They were given immediate rights. They were allowed to work. But as a result, the number of refugees that came to Hong Kong, and there will be loads of people that can give way more better information. You've got to remember, I was like five. (laughs) my, (laughs) My intellectual knowledge is not great. But I remember seeing photographs of people that my mom would work with. And these camps were full of people, families, hundreds and thousands of children and children the same age as me and lots of pictures of them just sitting by the side of these kind of makeshift huts. And so my mum has always worked with refugees. We live in Stockport and until COVID, my mum is 70. One of the lead volunteers. I know. 
she doesn't care actually but my mum is one of the lead volunteers in Stockport Refugee Service so she helps to collect kind of baby equipment for them she goes and makes them massive amounts of food and they have a, a meal they used to have Christmas parties I mean sadly Covid has shut a lot of those things down I told her about this episode she went oh do you want I've got the personal telephone number of the refugee health visitor in Stockport if you'd like <laughs> and I was like mom I didn't know this but I suppose it's something that I've just always grown up with that you don't judge people so when I moved back to England these people for me were people who had escaped atrocity whether that was persecution for their beliefs for who they were for escaping war fleeing whatever it was they were fleeing these people were fleeing because life was unbearable that's all I needed to know and they were looking for a better life for them for their families when I came back to the UK as a teenager I had never experienced the negativity that I've seen and I still can't quite get my head around it so I'm not afraid to stick my neck out and say I don't understand these people that fear asylum seekers because we have complained you know we've had a tough year covid has been really tough but we've complained about being in our houses for a year and i know there's people in poverty in the uk i'm not saying that everybody has an easy life but for for a lot of us staying at home has been the hardship and then i look back and think and i speak to some of my patients because i work with asylum seekers i've worked with somebody who watched his brother be beheaded and then came over here to escape persecution himself. And I can't equate the two. And so for me, the victimization, lack of compassion and understanding was why I wanted to do this episode. Because I think we forget as nurses, I mean, for you and for Jean, it's every day and you don't forget and you see it and you live it and you breathe it because you're in a specialist team. But I think it's really easy in a wider healthcare setting Mm -hmm. to sometimes forget the history of people and that asylum seekers and and anybody else but we know the effects of trauma on people on their physical health on their mental health and their subsequent outcomes and I cannot think of anybody that could argue that anybody that seeks asylum here or anywhere else has not experienced trauma either before they arrive or whilst they're here because and they're very, treated very, very often during what these people go through to get here is horrific. yeah that's what I mean to get here like we saw all of that stuff last year about the monitoring of the channel and sending big ships out to overturn these tiny little boats yeah that you know I've been on a big ship on the channel when it I wasn't think that's barbaric. I just but, think that's barbaric it, yeah So it was really important to me. I'm so proud of you for working in that specialised area because it's tough and it's going to be tough for you. And, you know, you're still in that first month of loving it and there will be times and it will be political and it will be challenging. But I think it's really important, as I said in our interview with Jean, I think that we all understand and acknowledge who these people are. And I know people have different opinions and I'd like to say that. Okay. <laughs> I think it's one of my few areas where I think it's not okay. Yeah, I um, to vilify people. <laughs> I think it's really pertinent that we point out just and I again I'm gonna to go to the actual UK legislation just to point out what the difference is between migrants and asylum seekers. So sure. to seek asylum really to seek asylum, there's certain eligibility 
So to stay in the UK as a refugee, you must be unable to live safely in any part of your own country because you fear persecution there. The persecution must be because of your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion. And we're not strangers to that. Anything <laughs> else that puts you at risk because of the social, cultural, religious or political situation in your country. For example, your gender, gender identity or sexual orientation. And I think, again, as we said at the start, it's very current. There was so, tragically, that young gay man in Iran, Ali Reza Fazeli Monofred, a 20-year-old gay Iranian man who was beheaded by his own brother and cousins just for being gay, for who he was born and his body was thrown in a field. And that was days before he was about to flee and meet his fiancée in Amsterdam and seek refugee status. And I just don't understand how we can live in a world where that happens. And then you get refugee status once your asylum application is either granted or not. But that can take up to eight years, and then that whole application process can be denied, and you're either then deported or you can try and apply for it again. Yeah, and we take things granted. There's a case that Amnesty International are supporting. I think it's three women, and I can't off the top of my head remember which country it is now, but they were standing on a train station platform giving out flowers to promote peace. And their government decided that this was a political statement. And for two reasons. One is political statements kind of weren't allowed, but they particularly weren't allowed by women. These women have got life imprisonment. And so they're in prison for life. And you think, why would you stay? I talk about women's rights all the time. I'm passionate about them. I'm passionate about telling my children that they can do what they want to treat everybody with respect. My daughter walks around going, you do you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think anybody that could say to me that I could be imprisoned for what I've said today on this podcast, because let's face it, in a lot of countries... Me saying, I think women are equal to men. Oh, and by the way, I don't like the government's policy. Would, would You'd be stoned today. you in prison. Yeah, tortured, imprisoned. So why would you want to stay in a country like that? And yes, we should promote change in all of these countries and growth. But I just, I can't imagine what it's like to fear your life. I can't imagine what it's like to want to come to somewhere that you have to go through such a horrific ordeal to get here. And not every asylum seeker comes over on a boat. Some people do have safer passages. I do know that. But my wish is that, and I said it in the interview with Jean, we all need to learn a bit more because I think my other reason for wanting to do this and nurses and healthcare professionals are not immune to this, that I think a large majority of the information we get as a public population about asylum seekers is from the tabloid media. Yeah. And we see, you mentioned Brexit earlier and people thought Brexit was about managing our borders and asylum seekers. And yes, it means we can have different legislation, but actually that was just a a line, I feel, on their political journey. And I think we need to be more educated and we need to find a way of making the public be more educated and understand and not accepting other people victimizing asylum seekers in our healthcare settings because you do see it you yeah. do see people refusing to sit next to someone you do see people not wanting to be in the bed next to somebody making derogatory comments and we need to understand what those people have already been through so that was why i 
particularly wanted to do yeah. this episode. And as someone reasons. that works with asylum seekers daily, like I am their first point of contact. I do their initial health assessments and then go out and triage them in their initial accommodation. These people are so grateful. They are so grateful to be in our country, to feel safe for the first time sometimes in such a long, long time and just have someone who is going to listen to them. And that's what we as nurses are so good at doing. Yeah, and that's what I kind of wanted to end on is Hebo, the comment she made, don't be afraid, be brave, be bold, be a humanist. And I just think, wow, what an inspirational like call to arms. And also what Jean said, there's no I in team, but there is an I in voice. Find your voice. It might not be about asylum seeker health, but find what you are passionate about, what your circle of concern is and how you can control that and influence it. And that's really important mm-hmm. to me. So it might not be asylum health, but find your voice in something. Yeah. And don't be afraid to be political. <laughs> yeah, don't be afraid to be political because nursing is political and life is political. Not necessarily party political. You don't need to be political with a capital P, but I think it's no. undeniable to say that nursing isn't political with a small P. We're influenced by political policy. We can't help but not be. So we should be. Yeah. So that's enough. We yes. need to do an episode on nursing and politics, I think, at some point we when do. we're feeling brave. But, so um, if anyone could actually suggest... Have a good fortnight, everybody. Yeah. If anyone could suggest who they would like in that episode, then give us your suggestions because nursing and politics would be a great episode. But yeah, everybody, have a lovely, lovely fortnight and we'll see you soon. Craig will be a year older when we come back and I'll have had a week's annual leave, which will be my first (laughs) since Christmas. So he'll be looking haggard and old or sounding haggard and old and I'll be refreshed (laughs) and chilled. So let's see how that goes. Oh, love you too. Okay. (laughs) I'll speak to you all later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcast, subscribe to Retain the Passion on your usual podcast provider. You can follow us on all the social media channels at PodRTP on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash PodRTP, or see our website www.podrtp.com for all our episodes. You can follow Craig at CraigDavidson85 on Twitter or me, Claire, at Manners of Marple. See you next time. All music from this podcast was courtesy of Kevin McLeod.